Hello, my name is Giovanni and this is Social Medicine, my weekly therapy session wherein we delve deep into the issues that are on my mind. On this episode, I'll be presenting my argument for the immeasurable power of words. Communication is a critical component of life for all creatures, but for humans in particular. There are numerous methods of communication that either fall into the verbal or nonverbal. Although the importance of nonverbal communication in society should not be overlooked, I want to focus my efforts this time around on the most critical component of ver- both verbal and written communication. Words. We can't escape words. We hear them, say them, read them, sign them. We would be a lost people without the invention of our written language. Despite this, I find that the subject of the power of words is something that is rarely discussed in my close personal and professional circles. Even as a prospective teacher, this is an issue that, or discussion that I have been sorely missing in my life. And yes, growing up, I was told of the importance of words and the power they have to both hurt and help people, but it was all surrounded by an air of condescension. I'm hoping to start a discussion, or at least to ask you all, and myself, to think more about speaking with purpose, and the many ways that we can better ourselves our relationships and communities one conversation at a time. Words are a tool for survival, and as I discuss in my episode on relationships, survival can mean something entirely different to different people, even within a community. To some, that definition is more literal, and to others, it takes a more social definition. Either way, words have the power to get us out of or put us in either tough or desirable situations. It is up to us and our mastery of our words to decide that. So if words can be described as tools of communication, what are our intentions in the mastery of these tools? I would say that all forms of communication can fall into one of three righteous categories. Entertainment, education, and assistance, with with each of these having a wicked counterpart. Entertainment takes many shapes. Movies, books, music, but it all serves to distract us from the most mundane, depressing, or regretful aspects of our life. Whether the end goal of the piece is to make us laugh, cry, dance, or have us question everything, it first and foremost has to grab our attention and then never let go. The best comedy specials are the ones that have us constantly laughing. The best thrillers are those that keep us invested in the story. The best music is the kind that we sing along to. The most universal and obvious examples of words as entertainment are jokes. We all tell jokes. We all tell stories. All in the name of entertaining one another. Why else would we be willing to cram ourselves in the same room as dozens of, if not hundreds, or if not even thousands of others to watch a movie, a comedy show, or a sports event? Fandom is a powerful reaction to our desire to belong. We are social creatures after all. We yearn to be a part of something. Distract ourselves from the mundanity of life by looking to feel the most positive of emotions. There's a psychological attachment to a specific sports team, for example, that creates a sense of belonging and community for fans. Something that can be extended to fandoms of all other forms of entertainment, whether it be fans of book series like Harry Potter and Twilight, or fans of Star Wars and comics. It's pretty easy to see ways in which sport fandom does meet certain basic human needs. One of those needs, one very powerful need, is the need to belong. You know, we've done so much research in the last uh, couple decades showing the relationship between identification with a local team and well-being. Right. People that identify with a local sport team are social, psychologically healthier. By identifying with a local team, it gives you this sense of belonging, mm-hmm. and that sense of belonging then in turn you know, lowers your sense of alienation, lowers your sense of loneliness. There's so much more to this issue than people going and watching a sporting event. But forming a community or a fandom is just the start of it. What people are looking for is to have discussions with like-minded individuals, to talk about the stuff they love with others who love it just as much. These discussions are at the heart of this sense of belonging. 
what good is saying you like something if you can't discuss it with others who like it as well or trying to defend your liking it against someone who doesn't but fandoms are the last notch on the entertainment as communication belt it starts with the words in the mind of in the minds of artists who then put them on pages to form books or screenplays or scripts the words that form a piece of art and the words that come as a result of shared love for said art are equally powerful, powerful enough to make us happier. But it isn't art alone that serves as entertainment in our lives. It's the small moments in our lives that potentially have the biggest effect on us. It's the inside jokes we share, the adventures we choose to go on, whether by ourselves or with others. It's the fun, it's the often funny or scary anecdotes we share with our families and friends, knowing that when it happened, our embarrassing experiences would become an entertaining story to tell. Words have the power to make us forget about all the sad, ugly, or just boring aspects of our lives, of our existence, if only for a bit. I'm not proposing we consume entertainment to ignore all the happenings in society, especially right now. I'm simply stating an observation that our words help distract us. They help remove us from reality until we are ready to jump back into the very real and very ugly world. Now, as I mentioned before, each of these three righteous categories of communication have wicked counterparts. And the wicked counterparts to entertainment is offending. Whereas entertainers use words to entertain others to make them feel good, those who offend seek to entertain themselves, to make themselves feel good at the expense of others' happiness. Basically bullying. The best examples come from racists telling other people to go back to your country. Move, go back to your country. Listen, I said, I said, excuse me. Go back, wherever you're from. Go back to wherever the fuck you come from, lady. No fucking good. Go back to your country, my man. Go back to Asia. Go back to Mexico. Go back to your fucking country. These are people that if they don't like it here, they can leave. It's the most common example of nationalist racist rhetoric. It's meant to demean others by making themselves feel superior. Harassing minorities is white America's favorite pastime. But what of the examples of offending others that is not meant in bad faith? Do they even exist? I would say yes, but I know some people might not agree. I think the more racy and offensive jokes, the ones targeting a specific group of people, have the potential of being the funniest ones. It's not enough for a white comedian to say the n-word, however, that is neither funny nor impressive. Good, offensive jokes are slathered with a good amount of satire. Maybe those jokes are bringing attention to bigoted stereotypes or current events in American politics. Or maybe just bringing up irony in a group of people's shared way of thinking. But the differentiating factor between genuinely good jokes and solely offensive ones are their writing and delivery. An example of what I would consider a good, quote-unquote, offensive joke can be found in Dave Chappelle's latest Netflix comedy special, Six and Stones. In fact, the whole special can fit under this, but I'll play you a short clip of him talking about the Jesse Smollett incident. African-Americans, we were like oddly quiet. <laughs> we were so quiet about this shit that the gay community started accusing African-American community of being homophobic for not supporting him. But what they didn't understand is that we were supporting him with our silence. <laughs> because we understood that this nigga was clearly lying. None of these details added up at all. He said he's walking down the street in Chicago and, and, and uh, white dudes come up to him and say, hey man, aren't you that faggot nigger from Empire? A uh, uh, fuck? Does that sound like how white people talk? 
No white people. They don't talk like that. Are you that faggot nigga from Empire? They would never say that. It sounds like something that I would say. <laughs> if you're racist and homophobic, you're not even gonna know who this nigga is. You can't watch Empire. Black people never feel sorry for the police, but this time we even felt sorry for the police. Can you imagine if you was a police veteran taking this kid's police report? Okay, Mr. Smoulier, please tell me what happened. All right, well, 2 a.m. We left the house at 2 a.m. It's minus 16 degrees. All right. You were walking. You were walking. All right. And, and where were you going? Subway. Sandwiches? <laughs> That's when the men approach you? Did you see them? Do you have any? Okay, what, what do they have on? MAGA hats. MAGA hats on in Chicago. Excuse me one second, Mr. Smoulier. Frank, come here for a second. Find out where Kanye West was last night. It's important to have a good sense of humor, because without one, one is miserable. We can laugh at Jesse Smollett now, knowing what we know, but we can also vehemently stand against incidents like this that actually happened. There's no rule that says if you laugh, you can't empathize, and vice versa. Humans are complex, multifaceted creatures, and we must let our words illustrate that. And we must not be afraid to laugh and to make others laugh. I'm going to read out a list of short and long-term benefits from laughing by the Mayo Clinic, as well as tips they share to improve your sense of humor. Uh, it reads... Stress relief from laughter. A good sense of humor can't cure all ailments, but data is mounting about the positive things laughter can do. Short-term benefits. A good laugh has great short-term benefits. When you start to laugh, it doesn't just lighten your load mentally, it actually induces physical changes in your body. Laughter can stimulate many organs. Laughter enhances your intake of oxygen-rich air, stimulates your heart, lungs, and muscles, and increases the endorphins that are released by your brain. Activate and relieve your stress response. A rollicking laugh fires up and then cools down your stress response, and it can increase and then decrease your heart rate and blood pressure. The result? A good, relaxed feeling. Soothe tension. Laughter can also stimulate circulation and aid muscle re relaxation, both of which can help reduce some of the physical symptoms of stress. Now here are some long-term effects. Laughter isn't just a quick pick-me-up though, it's also good for you over the long term. Laughter may improve your immune system. Negative thoughts manifest into chemical reactions that can affect your body by bringing more stress into your system and decreasing your immunity. By contrast, positive thoughts can actually release neuropeptides that help fight stress and potentially more serious illnesses. Laughter may relieve pain. Laughter may ease pain in, by causing the body to produce its own natural painkillers. Increase personal satisfaction. Laughter can also make it easier to cope with difficult situations. It also helps you connect with other people. And laughter may improve your mood. Many people experience depression sometimes due to chronic illnesses. Laughter can help lessen your depression and anxiety and may make you feel happier. Now here are some tips to improve your sense of humor. Uh, put humor on your horizon. Find a few simple items such as photos, greeting cards, or comic strips that make you chuckle. Then hang them up at your house or in your office. Keep funny movies, books, magazines, or comedy videos on hand for when you need an added humor boost. Look online for funny websites. 
go to a comedy club. Laugh and the world laughs with you. Find a way to laugh about your own situations and watch your stress begin to fade away. Even if it feels forced at first, practice laughing. It does your body good. Consider trying laughter yoga. In laughter yoga, people practice laughter as a group. Laughter is forced at first, but it can soon turn into spontaneous laughter. Share a laugh. Make it a habit to spend some time with friends who make you laugh, like me. And then return the favor by sharing funny stories or jokes with those around you. Knock, knock. Browse through your local bookstore or library selection of joke books and add a few jokes to your list that you can share with friends. Finally, know what isn't funny. Don't laugh at the expense of others. Some forms of humor aren't appropriate. Use your best judgment to discern a good joke from a bad or hurtful one. And although it may seem that I may be contradicting myself by including that last tip, I do think the moderation is important. Practicing using your best judgment to decide whether a joke is funny or offensive is a great way to make or to become a more empathetic individual. We all have our limits in our free speech, so it's up to us to practice this and all of our rights responsibly. An important aspect of communication and the one I am dedicating my life to is education. Under this category, I include every form of communication that is meant to enlighten, to stimulate the mind and the soul with either new information or new perspectives. Whatever helps cure ignorance of any kind, I will include under this category. Education happens even when we aren't actively thinking about it. Even when we don't mean to be educated, we are being educated. People often believe that education only exists within the walls of schools, and that is an incredibly wrong idea of how education should and does work. We learn from the media we consume, when conversing with each other, all by interpreting knowledge and information given to us. Albert Bandura's social cognitive theory teaches us that Words aren't even necessary for us to be influenced by those around us, but of course the most common method of instruction is lecture-based, which is an archaic and misused method of teaching. I personally subscribe to teaching methods that require more social interactions among students and not just the teacher talking for an entire class period. More democratic classroom discussions based on the Socratic method of dialogue is what I believe best fits healthy learning. It's this ironic combination of democracy and Socratic dialogue that I believe would better combat the increasingly inefficient public school system in America's more racialized communities. My personal teaching philosophy is to promote empathy and have it reign. Without empathy, we lose our humanity. In other words, civil, healthy, and even heated discussions are instrumental in our social development as human beings. The Socratic method is a great teaching tool because it helps keep students engaged which is in stark contrast to the traditional lecture. Some questions are designed to elicit lower-level thinking answers. For example, in what year did the American Revolution begin? A simple 1776 is all that is needed. But the Socratic method used by a seasoned professor is used to engage the higher-level thinking, as when the professor asks, why did the American colonies revolt in 1776? An example of this open class discussion is the viral debate about the Confederate flag at Shawnee Mission East High School in Prairie Village, Kansas, where this gem originated from. You do have a right to fly it. I do not think it should be flown on public property, like in front of a state house. You can also fly it at protests. But he mentioned misconceptions. There are no misconceptions about that flag. The flag that we see today is not actually the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag is similar to that of the United States. It has a blue upper right-hand corner with seven stars in a circle, two red stripes, and in the middle, a white stripe. The flag we see today is an interpretation of a Confederate battle flag. And the interpretation went up in the 1960s, around the time the Civil Rights Movement started, and to the point where it's not racially motivated. 
then how come it's a symbol for so many groups like the KKK and the National Socialist Movement, who, as you all probably know, have white supremacist and neo-Nazi ideologies? Also, I find it ironic that people claim to be patriots when they fly that flag. The Confederates stabbed the Union in the back. They shot first, they murdered 500,000 American soldiers, and they argued that it was because of states' rights. I ask, states' rights to do what? What were we considering getting rid of at the time? Not guns, we weren't trying to raise taxes, it was slavery. We were trying to stop the expansion of slavery to the West. The Southern aristocracy panicked and left the Union. They said, we are not Americans, we are from the South, so we're starting our own country. And then they proceeded to launch numerous terrorist attacks against the Union, shooting at Fort Sumter, murdering 200 people in Lawrence, Kansas. It is important to note that these discussions do not result in winners and losers. They instead are important in expanding our thinking from the clo closed mindset undiverse communities create. I can assure you none of the students in that debate came out thinking differently about America's rights to fly the Confederate flag, but they at least were exposed to a way of thinking different from the one they were raised on. This is the clearest example of communication as education, and the most fitting for all kinds of settings, as there is no classroom requirement or expectation. In fact, the most common application of this is at Thanksgiving dinner, at least that's the joke I wouldn't know but a lot of times words have the power to change our minds and I think that is incredible but just as words can be used to educate they too can be used to miseducate words are a powerful weapon and just like every other weapon they can either be used for good or evil now I fully accept that what I consider education can be considered miseducation by others and vice versa it's subjective but I think that there are some things that the majority of us the most decent of our species would agree are morally wrong and are a menace to society the biggest example of which is racism because I'm sure you all are, are tired of hearing racism is learned not inherent and it is something that is being taught and expressed by our own teachers like in this case while some may ask for the larger context of her outbursts I think that enough context is given in this clip to clearly see the inherent racist view she holds and while we are on the subject of racial slurs let's talk about the words that we as a society have deemed the most powerful I'm going to hold a position that not all uses of these slurs are equally reprehensible as is true of all things the use of racial slurs is on the spectrum. Let me give you a couple examples that occurred at the University of Oklahoma earlier this year within a couple weeks of each other. Peter Gade was under fire for suggesting that saying, OK, Boomer, was as harmful to old people as it is to call the black person the n-word. The more senile he gets, the more ridiculous things he will say, and although that is not an excuse of his idiotic statement, it should serve as a warning for those closest to him. He would later apologize and include something in his apology that I disagree with. In it, he states that, quote, use of the word is inappropriate in any, especially educational, settings. I would argue that the only defensible setting for using the word is in, in an educational one. Not every educational setting, however. It wouldn't be appropriate to say the word around elementary schoolers. Now, would it? But the use of it in history classes in college should almost be expected. Definitely to read it, possibly to hear it. Again, I should emphasize that I am not promoting the use of this word by educators, nor am I saying that it is 100% okay. I'm merely stating that an educational setting is the only setting where use of the word should be defensible. But of course, not even two weeks after the initial incident at OU this year, Kathleen Brosnan came under fire for using the word repeatedly as she read a 1920 Senate document and after giving a trigger warning before doing so. This in my eyes is not nearly as bad 
bad as was the case with Gade, even if he didn't explicitly say it. But even if it weren't as bad, it doesn't mean that it wasn't bad at all. She should have had the foresight to not do something that would clearly offend and rile people up. It's a nasty word with an ugly history and a nasty hold on current racial relations in America. So maybe not say it next time? It really is not that hard. I invite you to first listen to this beautiful perspective on the power of words by Maya Angelou. Words are things, I'm convinced. You must be careful about the words you use, or the words you allow to be used in your house. In the Old Testament, we are told in Genesis that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That's in Genesis. Words are things. You must be careful. Careful about calling people out of their names, using racial pejoratives and sexual pejoratives and all that ignorance. Don't do that. Someday we'll be able to measure the power of words. I think they are things. I think they get on the walls. They get in your wallpaper. They get in your rugs, in your upholstery, in your clothes, and finally into you. Words are things and things can be used in hurtful ways. As a prospective social studies teacher, I can attest to the rigged curriculum that is meant to teach American study students a single historical viewpoint, a Eurocentric one. And Kathleen Brosnan's apology points to this, where she states, quote, I wanted all the students in class to recognize an ugliness in U.S. history that is unfortunately still part of some students' lived experience. Well, a better way of doing this, without the use of the historically hurtful word, would be to teach from a larger array of viewpoints of the people that helped shape our nation. Imagine how powerful the words of marginalized peoples would be and the perspectives that they can provide to us in 2020. The knowledge would be insurmountable and would benefit society in ways I can only imagine. The educational slash miseducational aspect of verbal communication also has a large connection to the final form of communication I listed, assistance, and its counterpart, obstruction. A lot of the times we speak up is to ask for help or to help someone, and an example of that could be informing someone of something that they don't know. That's essentially what teaching is, right? So while teachers communicate to educate they are simultaneously assisting. We must not be afraid to assist others because, again, once we stop, we lose our humanity. Under this category, I'm going to include simple greetings and phrases that may not seem all that important, but whose power to do good adds up. I personally have tried my best to practice proper social etiquette and thanking someone every time they went out of their way to do something nice for me, even if it's something as small as holding the door for me or complimenting me for something. I was raised this way. It's a really small way to make the world a better place because the more you do it and the more you do it genuinely, the more it'll convince others to do so. It spreads. There's an added benefit that people you regularly interact with, with uh, will find you more personable and will begin to show signs of trust. That's how friendships are formed. But showing a general respect to our fellow humans should be reward enough because we all go through things in our lives that others won't know and who knows. Maybe hearing someone say thank you could brighten someone's day more than you could imagine. We all need to hear these things, but there's a reason why people who don't normally hear these things don't speak up about it. A friend of mine, April, who I've had since kindergarten, she thanks her children for doing their chores. And she said, why wouldn't I thank it even though they're supposed to do it? So the question is, why was I blocking it? Why were other people blocking it? Why can I say I'll take my steak medium rare, I need size six shoes, but I won't say, would you praise me this way? And it's because I'm giving you critical data about me. I'm telling you where I'm insecure. I'm telling you where I need your help. And I'm treating you, my inner circle, like you're the enemy. Because what can you do with that data? You could neglect me, you could abuse it, or you could actually meet my need.
It's hard to ask for help, so why don't we all do our best to help so those in need of it don't have to go to the trouble of asking? Not everyone can donate, not everyone can dedicate their time to be there for someone, but there's absolutely nothing stopping you from using your words to make someone smile, to show them respect. But this is bigger than that. A psychiatric journal had a short article titled Just a Smile and a Hello on the Golden Gate Bridge by Robert Simon MD, which details his research into bridge suicide, points to the power of kind words and a smile. In this article, he writes of John Kevin Hines, who survived a suicide attempt after jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge. Hines told Simon that, quote, if someone had smiled and said, are you okay? I know I would have begged them to help me. I would have told them everything and asked for help. I would not have jumped. I just was unable to ask for help myself. Think about how much help a simple how are you doing today or even a smile and a hello would be for some people. How much such simple kindnesses could do about how much influence they may have over people's ultimately deciding whether or not to go through with their suicide. But just as we have the power to assist with our words, so too can we create an obstruction between others and their happiness or even their lives. Just as kindness can go a long way to convince people not to kill themselves, words can just as easily be used to encourage someone to end their life. As is the case with Michelle Carter, who through text convinced her boyfriend, Conrad Roy, of ending his life. Another example and one pertaining to more current events is the All Lives Matter anti-movement, which is a way for white supremacists and people generally apathetic towards the obvious corruption of the American police system that promotes and perpetuates the systemic racism and abuse of power that our political system in turn keeps defending and allowing to prevail, which allows cops to get away with the profiling, mistreatment, and vile murder of countless innocent black Americans. It's an issue with an understanding of the English language and humanity, both of which all lives matter people are severely lacking in. If they weren't, they would understand that just because someone says that black lives matter, it doesn't mean that no other lives matter. Or they would see the evil that they are continuing by ignoring the racial injustices that take place in this country. But we understand, and they understand, the real reason for this anti-protest. Vanity. Bigotry is born of ignorance and perpetuated by jealousy. White America loves itself. It's why they tell minorities to go back to their country. Why they can't live with a minority group being at the center of attention. And why Hitler pushed the idea of a pure master race. And this is just one example. Standing in obstruction to the Black Lives Matter movement is also the Blue Lives Matter movement as well. Which I will be getting into in my next episode. But this is all born of ignorance, and as I said, ignorance can be cured. But in a lot of cases, it's going to take a lot more than just words. When it comes to social medicine, I want to introduce my listeners to not only my opinions, but also new ways of looking at things in a more abstract sense. My goal isn't to convince you of something or have you think of or have you think how I think, but is to have you at the very least listen and empathize, which goes back to my personal teaching philosophy. The world is filled with ignorance, and although it may be bliss, it's also hell for those of us having to deal with said ignorant people. Words are a powerful tool of ridding the world of such ignorance, and although I don't think I'm going to save the world with this show, I'd like to think that I'm doing my part. Essentially, I wanted to illustrate my way of thinking, because I understand that it may differ from others' way of thinking. Dividing things up into structured pieces of a whole is how my brain works and how I think a lot of people look at things, especially when dividing into three parts. It's why stories are generally told in trilogies or in three-act structures. It's why we are taught to divide our papers into an introductory paragraph, three body paragraphs, and a conclusion when we write. And it is why my scripts follow a very similar format. Breaking things down helps me understand things better, which is why I wanted to present the idea that we use words in three main ways. And I think I do an okay job at illustrating all three of those ways with this show. At least that is the intended goal. I aim to entertain, 
educate or inform and assist. Some may argue that I instead offend, miseducate, and obstruct, but I'll chalk that up to a difference of opinions. That's going to be it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show and appreciate the time and effort I put into researching, writing, recording, and editing it, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash social medicine. There's only one tier of a dollar a month, and that's for anyone who enjoys the show and wants to help build it. Words are a tool for survival, but not the only one. Our mastery over these three forms of communication will help us lead better and happier lives. I genuinely believe that. There comes a time when words just aren't enough, when we must fight fire with fire. And although I would never suggest that our fire must match the violence and vanity of those in power, it must be matched with a loud and unified voice. And right now, that voice is beginning to be heard all around the world in ways never before seen. Social medicine will always support the right for everyone to live a life free from fear, discrimination, and oppression. Black Lives Matter. Thank you for listening. Now more than ever, I will implore you all to stay safe and to stay sane. God bless you all, and God bless every innocent life that has been taken from us by the evil people of the world. May you rest in peace. Goodbye.